0: Today we're going to be looking at a chapter in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18, and I was struck by this chapter a couple of months ago, and I've just taken a deep dive into it, and I think that it has a lot to say to us today. So if you want to turn there, we'll, we'll get started there in a second, but perhaps a question to orient us to this text today is the question, what is faith. Faith is a word that appears at the beginning of this chapter and at the end of this chapter. And I think that it's an important theme that we see throughout this chapter. Faith is a word that is thrown out there a lot, especially if you're in the church or in a Christian background. We can talk broadly about the Christian faith as a set of beliefs. But is that all that it means, to to mentally agree with a list of facts? Or for some people, faith is more of this feeling that they need to muster up through their own effort and hope that God approves, that I have enough faith for him. But the Bible says something different than both of these. In the passage we just read, we heard about Christians who the author of Hebrews was writing to. These Christians believed in Jesus, but then they quickly faced problems. They faced opposition. Some of them were mistreated. Others were thrown in prison. Some had their possessions taken away from them. And the author of Hebrews says, you endured all of this joyfully because you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one. For these believers, you could say that their faith was more than just mental assent to a list of facts. For them, as Hebrews 11, 1 says, faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For these believers, faith was about living in the present based on a glorious hope for the future. But what about us? What do we put our faith in? That's maybe a question that's good to reflect on as we cross from 2020 into 2021, right? In 2020, a lot of things were exposed about what we put our faith in. I I think back towards the beginning of the year, both my wife and I ended up in the emergency room. She, because she was in a car accident while eight months pregnant, and me about a month later with a panic attack. Then we uh, welcomed a month later, our little boy, and, and kids are a blessing from the Lord. They are amazing, but I will tell you that they do not make life easier. And in April, I quit my job in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of the largest unemployment spike in U.S. history. If 2020 taught us anything, it's that there's a lot of wrong places that we put our faith, things that will fail us. Our strength, our health, our job. This is where the world puts their faith, and the truth is that it just doesn't last And so in Luke 18, we're going to walk through some stories, narrative after narrative of Jesus pointing out places where people have put their faith, trying to dismantle those structures of their faith so that they can find it again in him. So let's open up Luke 18. We're going to jump into the middle of Luke's gospel about three quarters of the way through. Luke is recounting how Jesus is on a journey. He's slowly getting closer and closer to Jerusalem where he knows his death awaits him. And all along the way, Jesus is teaching and proclaiming and healing, showing his followers what it means to live in the kingdom of God. So I'll give you five points today over these six narratives and walk through them one at a time. So in your Bibles, Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? He will, will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith? on the earth. In this parable we're introduced to a couple of characters who couldn't be less alike. First you have this judge, someone with enough power and influence that he doesn't have to worry about what other people think of him. He's stubborn and set in his ways and he's proud of it. Then you have a widow, someone without any family, no network of support to take care of her. This makes her vulnerable to exploitation, which seems to be the case here because she talks about an adversary that has come against her. And so she comes to this judge and asks him to use his authority to make things right. So what's the conflict? This woman has a problem. The judge has the power to fix the problem, but he doesn't. He has the power, he just doesn't have the desire. So the widow keeps asking and asking, and asking, and soon enough, the judge gives, in. not because he cares about helping her, not because he has a moral conviction that he should, but because he cares for himself, and this woman won't stop bothering him, and Jesus says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. So what, what's the point of this parable? What, what are we supposed to take away from it? Well, the good news is Luke tells us right in verse one. He says what we should get out of this. He says in verse one, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, m- maybe this is obvious, but think about this. Why, why is this something we need to be told to persistently pray and to not lose hope? not lose heart? I think that the answer is fairly simple. It's because we are prone to stop praying and we are prone to lose heart. Left on our own, when life is good, we feel that we have less of a need to pray. What is there to pray for? This woman brought her requests again and again because she had no other options. I'm sure she didn't like bothering this judge, but he was all that she had. And Jesus lifts her up as an example of faith. Prayerlessness in our lives is maybe a good indicator that we, we're putting our faith in something other than God. I had an old boss who used to say that we're either prayerful or we're prideful. Jonathan Edwards said that to say a man lives a life of faith and yet lives a prayerless life is every whit as inconsistent and incredible as to say that that man lives without breathing. And all of this is driven home by this final line from Jesus. When the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth? I don't think Jesus was talking about people who agree to a list of facts or spend all of their time merely trying to avoid everything that's false. He's talking about a way of life that like Hebrews 10 is looking and hoping for that day when Jesus returns and making decisions in this life based on that hope. As one commentator put it, the context of this parable indicates that the son of man will be looking for those who are looking for him. I like that a lot. And this is our first point. Number one, that faith in Jesus means persistently seeking him. Faith in Jesus means persistently seeking him. All right, the next story. Keep the first one loosely in your mind as we continue through these stories, and I think you'll see these themes develop any more. Luke 8, even more. So in Luke 18, beginning in verse 9, Jesus tells another parable. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now there are a few similarities and several differences that we can see between this parable and the one that came just before it. In the last parable, it was really easy to identify the good guy and the bad guy, the unrighteous judge and the powerless widow. Very clear line there. But in Jesus' time and day, He was flipping their categories. The Pharisees were seen as heroes. They were seen as the good guys. They were the model examples. In in contrast, tax collectors were despised for their very vocation. They were seen as sellouts to Rome. They worked for the enemy. And yet this is the one that Jesus lifts up as an example of faith. Now look at how they act. I think that this was so revealing. One commentator points out that in the Pharisees' prayer, he refers to himself in the first person five times in two verses. He's totally self-absorbed and he's completely blind to it. In his mind, he's doing everything right. God deserves to forgive him because he's checked all of the boxes. He's praying in effect, thank you, God, that I am such a great guy. And Jesus says, in effect, that that's the guy who's going home condemned. Why is that? Luke starts again telling us the point of this parable. In the beginning in verse 9, he says that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Where is their faith? It's in themselves. It's in their own good deeds. And Jesus says that putting our faith in our own righteousness Will never make us right with God. On the other hand, the tax collector stands at the edge of the temple. He doesn't come any farther. He doesn't look up. He beats his breast in sorrow. And you know what you don't hear? You don't hear him saying, You know, God, I became a tax collector because I really didn't have any other options. There are no excuses. You don't hear him saying, God, I know that I've done some things wrong, but man, I know some people who have done some really bad things. He doesn't justify himself. He asks for forgiveness from God. Based on what? Not based on himself, but based on God. And Jesus says that he's the one who goes home made right with God. He cried out for mercy, and the just judge heard and answered quickly. God is looking for those who are looking for him. This is our second point, that faith in Jesus means humbly depending on his mercy. Putting our faith in Jesus means humbly depending on his mercy. Luke then shifts from a couple of parables to a couple of encounters that Jesus has. And wouldn't you guess it, a lot of the themes that we've seen play out in those parables are going to come up again. First is a story of little children that are brought to Jesus. Looking uh, at Luke 18, beginning in verse 15, Luke writes, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, hold on just a second. This, this is a short section. It's only three verses long. But did you hear what Jesus just said? In effect, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here. He says, unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're never getting in. What is he talking about? Well, let's, let's ask another question that maybe will help us see this from a different angle. Why are the disciples so earnest about not letting children come to Jesus? What, what's motivating that? Now, we might have to infer some of this, but it's not hard. Commentators say the disciples were trying to guard Jesus' time. Or one said that their their motive was an exaggerated sense of self-importance. Hmm. Where did I just recently read about someone who had an exaggerated sense of self-importance? Oh, yeah, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector just before this. The disciples had it in their heads that Jesus shouldn't be bothered with petty things. That's not what the Messiah does. Yet Jesus corrects them. This is exactly what the Messiah does. He comes to the childlike, to those who are dependent, and they know it. The disciples thought that they saw these things clearly. But Jesus shows them their inability to see. It's the simple trust of a child that Jesus says opens the door to the kingdom of God. And so the third point is this, number three, that faith in Jesus is founded on simple trust. Faith in Jesus is founded on simple trust. Well, if Jesus is looking for those who are looking for him, then got great news. Here comes a guy who's looking for Jesus. We can read his story beginning in verse 18. If you'll look there with me. Luke 18, verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I've kept since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Now, this story, it starts out with a lot of promise. In, in Mark's account of this story, this guy comes running up to Jesus like a little child and like a humble tax collector, he kneels before him. And he asks a really important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow, how thrilled would he be if someone asked you that question? That's, that's softball Christianity 101, Plus, he's described as rich and young, presumably an attractive guy with some influence. The disciples are like, check, 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 welcome aboard. <laughs> but once again, Jesus is trying to help us see how blind we are. We look at the world upside down. Jesus is trying to help us look at the world right side up. What must I do to have eternal life? I don't think that this guy was outwardly super prideful, but how many of us are? Instead, the question he asks disguises pride with the most sincere clothing. Do you see it? He asks, what must I do? So Jesus gives him a challenge that exposes the true nature of his heart. He says, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And with those words, the young man went away sad because he had great wealth. So what is it that we learn here? Do we learn that you can't put your faith in Jesus unless you sell everything that you have? Not exactly. Jesus' command to sell everything isn't a commandment in the Bible for all people. But I don't think that Jesus was bluffing either. Like I don't think he was being symbolic or facetious with this guy, just trying to gauge his response when he asked him that. I think that Jesus understood that for this guy, the only way he would truly have life is if he traded all of his earthly wealth for heavenly wealth. It makes me think of Hebrews 10 again. Remember how the writer said, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Why would you joyfully accept the plundering of your property? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. I don't think it's actually crazy what Jesus is asking this young guy to do. I think that if you see the world with the eyes of faith like Jesus sees it, that this request makes all the sense in the world. Trade your earthly wealth for heavenly wealth. Trade what is valuable but will never last for what is far more valuable and will last forever. But the young man couldn't do it, why? because he had so much money, he had so much that he could put his hope in other than Jesus. Giving that up, I'd leave him without a safety net. I mean, who would do that? Only someone who believed that Jesus offered a greater reward than all of our worldly wealth. And if you catch yourself thinking, whew, I'm glad Jesus didn't ask me to give up all of my earthly wealth, then I think you're missing the point. Point four in our message today, that faith in Jesus means joyfully giving up all rebel hopes. Faith in Jesus means joyfully giving up all rebel hopes. If you lay your head down on your pillow at night and you have more peace in your heart from knowing the number in your savings account than knowing that you are a beloved child of God most high, then in that area of life, your faith is in the wrong place. There's something, this is something that we're all constantly drawn to. It's not one and done. There are many rebel hopes in our lives. and, And I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict you of those, even now, those rebel hopes that we put our trust in. But it's not just about money. It's about all of us daily battling our sinful hearts for allegiance to Jesus but I do think it's important that Jesus specifically calls out money in this passage. He tells his disciples that it's hard for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it's easier to thread a needle through the eye of a a camel. (laughs) To thread a camel through the eye of a needle. Don't do the other way. That's easy, but probably won't end well for you. (laughs) Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples, see, the disciples reveal their hearts again. They're dismayed. They say, who then can be saved? They're showing this assumption that they actually assume that the rich and the privileged it's easier for them to get into the kingdom. What's ironic is that Jesus answers them by basically saying, who can be saved? People like you people who are willing to drop everything if it means that they can have Jesus, people who receive him with the simple trust of a child who are humble and dependent on his mercy, who faithfully and persistently seek him. Jesus has been showing us that the kingdom doesn't look like we'd expect, but he has one more big twist for the disciples. And you'll see it in verse 31 of Luke 18. Here's what Jesus says. In taking the 12, he said to them, the areas where they are prone to put their faith. But now he's going to do something even more radical. He's actually going to disrupt their faith in him. See, the disciples, they didn't have a category for a Messiah who would suffer and die. The Messiah was someone who was supposed to come and rule with power and take out Rome so that Israel could be their own independent nation again and Luke is the only gospel writer here in this instance who points out the disciples didn't get it. He says that the saying was, was hidden from them, like it's something they should have been able to see, but they couldn't. They were blind to the truth. One, one commentator writes, in all probability, Luke doesn't mean that Jesus' message was unintelligible, but that the disciples could not understand how his death could fit into the divine plan for Jesus. Jesus is a different kind of king. And he's bringing a different kind of kingdom. He doesn't come to the proud, the self-righteous, the rich, or the influential. That's what humans, human kingdoms do. Instead, he comes to the widows, the tax collectors, the children, the fishermen. And the very people he brought it to were blind to it. They needed their eyes opened. Point five for the message today is this, that faith in Jesus is founded on his death and resurrection. Faith in Jesus is founded on his death and resurrection. The death and resurrection of of Jesus is the event that we can look back on That is the foundation of our faith. It gives us that assurance for the future so that we can make decisions in the present life that reflect it. Paul says, without the death and resurrection of Jesus, our faith is useless. It's futile. We might as well not be believing this and all go home. But with it, we can choose to live and make decisions in the present in light of a coming glorious future. One last story, and this helps to bring all of these five things together in Luke 18, beginning in verse 35. As he, Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Guys, this story is so good. But I, I, want, I want you to see it through the five points that we talked about. Number one, that faith in Jesus means persistently seeking him. As soon as this blind man hears that Jesus is near, he calls out and calls out and calls out. Others tell him to be silent, but he persists. I need to see Jesus. Number two, faith in Jesus means humbly depending on his mercy. This man has nothing to give Jesus. He has no righteousness of his own to offer. He cries out the same words of that humble tax collector in the temple. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Number three, faith in Jesus is founded in simple trust. Jesus asks him what he wants, and this man responds with just two words in the Greek text. He says, Lord, sight. It's a simple faith, a simple cry of trust in Jesus. Number four, faith in Jesus means joyfully giving up all rebel hopes. This, this man had so little to lose, and yet others try to quiet him when he calls out. He faces their ridicule and their mocking, but none of that could compare with the hope of seeing Jesus who gives life. And fifth, faith in Jesus is founded on his death and resurrection. This is the only instance in Luke's entire gospel where the title Son of David is used to describe Jesus. It's a messianic title. The coming Savior would be the Son of David. And it doesn't come from a king. It doesn't come from a priest. It doesn't come from a prophet. It comes from a humble dependent, simple, blind man on the side of the road. And this is what Luke 18 has been about this whole time. Where do you put your faith? Do you put it in your health, in your money, in your status, in your job, in your influence? Or do you put it in Jesus? Because only one of those is able to open our blind eyes to see the world as it really is. And my prayer for us is that we might recognize our blindness and ourselves cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. When we do, that is precisely the moment when Jesus opens our eyes to see the treasure that we have in him. There is no hope apart from Jesus, but with Jesus, there is true and lasting and abundant hope. He died so that we might put our faith in him, and find life living in the present in light of the promise of glory in the future with Jesus is what it means to live by faith in him and that kind of faith is never disappointed this year may we be humble and dependent people who cry out to Jesus in faith I want to close in prayer but for my prayer I'd actually like to read from Psalm 146 again the psalm we read this morning And I want you to make this your prayer, that this year your faith would be in God and all that he has done and not in rebel hopes. So let's pray as I read for us Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed